Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 22nd, 2022, Tuesday, getting towards the end of the year. Um, 2020s so far have been an interesting period. A lot of comparisons with the 1970s. Um, we've done a couple of shows about those. The 70s began, of course, well with the promise of the 60s. We did a show with Ron Brownstein about the great cultural content that came out of Los Angeles in 1974. He sees 1974 as the culturally high moment in the history, I think, of America. Uh, but then... Things went wrong. Uh, we did a show with Helen Thompson about what she calls in her brilliant new book, Disorder, which is shortlisted for the 2022 FT Business Book of the Year, the hard times uh, of the 1970s. And, and things were tough, uh, perhaps most associated with the presidency of Jimmy Carter, one of America's most failed, vilified, or at least laughed at presidents. Um, of course, that climax, if that's the right word, in the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979 and what another of our guests, Kim Khatas, calls the unraveling of the modern Middle East in 1979. Meanwhile, there was a very interesting event, which most of you won't be familiar with, maybe not even heard of. In 1977, almost as a, a little... Uh, tantalizer to the unraveling of, uh, of, of all things by the end of the 1970s. There was a, a Washington, D.C. attack and hostage taking, which is covered in um, a new book, a book that's been brilliantly reviewed by my guest today, Shahan Mufti, American Caliph, the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C., uh, Shahan uh, teaches um, at the University of Richmond uh, uh, in the journalism department. Uh, Shahan, before we actually get to the story of American Caliph, how much of a mirror is it on the 1970s? What does it tell us about that period 50 years ago? Well, you set it up just right, Andrew. Um, this is the events that I'm covering. Obviously, the hostage taking that you just talked about is three days, uh, two full days in, 19, in March 1977. But in the book, I am covering a lot of events that are leading up to this moment and to this hostage crisis. And uh, in, that, in the course of doing that, I do cover a lot of the late 60s and the, the entire decade of the 70s. And uh, this is kind of, it's an interesting moment because it's sitting in between kind of the chaos uh, of the late 60s, mid late 60s, early 70s. We have the civil rights movement going on um, and then leads into Vietnam, protests in Washington, D.C. We generally have, there's an air piracy era going on, so there's hostage takings. And then that kind of morphs into the late 1970s, exactly with what you, you talked about here was the Iranian hostage crisis of the late 1970s, um, the turmoil in the Middle East. Uh, and that's kind of where I placed this hostage, this Hanafi hostage taking in 1977. It sits at the, it straddled these, it straddles these eras in some ways. And defined and, it in many ways. Um, Shahan, 
most of us, including myself, I have to admit, I'm rather embarrassed. I, I, we don't know much about it. So fill us in. Tell us about what exactly happened in this 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. that you write about in American Calif. Absolutely. And I, I was in the same boat. Uh, to be honest, when I encountered this story, it was a paragraph in an academic study uh, that I was looking at researching some material. And I, when I read it, I just couldn't believe that I didn't know about it because I've worked on political Islam. I've worked on militancy. And so something happening in Washington, D.C., 90, 90 miles up the road from where I was, it was just a shock. Um, what this was, uh, was a, a, in March, on March 9th, 1977, um, a group of men uh, took over three different locations in Washington, D.C. Uh, that was the B'nai B'rith, uh, which was on downtown Washington, D.C., uh, in Rhode Island Avenue, uh, which, was the which was the headquarters of the largest uh, Jewish services organization in the, in the country. Uh, and then up the street from there was the Islamic Center of Washington, D.C., another landmark building on Embassy Row on Massachusetts Avenue. And then uh, a third building, uh, just a few hundred yards from the White House, really. I mean, you could see it from the White House, but that was the district building in Washington, DC. These 12 men spread out, and between the hours of 11 a.m. and 2, uh, 2 p.m., they took over all three locations and uh, held close to 150 hostages in these three different locations. Um, there was vi violence in all three locations but in the district building close to the white house is where it got really bloody um shots were fired um the special operation division of the washington police was cutting loose up there and the hostage takers were cutting loose in the process um on the fifth floor of the washington in the, the district building within minutes of that takeover at around 2 p.m there were three bodies lying on the floor and, and pools of blood one of a security guard one of a, a young journalist from the Howard University radio station. And the third was actually a young councilman, well, not so young, but a prominent councilman by the name of Marion Barry, who would go on to, be, of course, become the mayor of Washington, D.C. for many years. Yeah, so he wasn't actually killed, Barry. He was just injured. He was badly injured. I mean, he, there was shrapnel in it, so he was bleeding from his chest. And of all the three people lying on the floor... Uh, of the fifth floor, he was the one who actually moved and crawled across into the council chambers and was later evacuated through a window um, on the in the building down a fire ladder and out to a hospital. But yeah, they, they, there was shrapnel about a quarter of an inch from his heart uh, when they took it out. So he was very close to being very hurt, but he miraculously Yeah, I mean, one of the astonishing things about this is, well, perhaps the most astonishing thing is, and it isn't as well known as it should be. And perhaps one reason is because it doesn't fit into any of the hysteria over terrorism, Islam, Judaism, the fact that these quote unquote terrorists, and, and it's not a word I like, you don't use it in your title. Um, they attack both uh, a, a, a Jewish group and a Muslim group. So it, it sort of, it, it, it doesn't fit into any traditional stereotype, does it, Shahan? No. Um, and it's this is also, I mean, also because there we didn't even have the vocabulary for this stuff in the 70s. There were hostage takings. Like I said, there was a lot of air piracy. There were airplane hijackers. Right, it was easy to, to, to hijack planes. It was being done yeah. all the time in the Middle East, even in the U.S. 
Absolutely. Oh, yes. Especially in the U.S. There were flights being taken to Cuba, to the middle, to North Africa. There was a lot going on in the air. When it came to the land, though, there was not. I mean, these buildings that I'm describing to you right now, these are three prominent uh, sensitive buildings that would be considered sensitive today. None of them really had metal detectors or any kind of security arrangements. There was a security guard in B'nai B'rith, but it, he didn't really, well, I mean, it was unarmed as far as I, I found out. So it, it's it, it's kind of, it was a different era altogether. And there's um, a degree of, um, you know, we can look back at the 70s like Helen Thompson does and worry about hard times. But there's also a degree of his of nostalgia for this period is that you didn't have this sort of terrorist security state, this hysteria over everything so that you were actually free. And maybe it wasn't always such a good thing to be so free that you could go in and shoot up buildings. But it was a very, very different time, wasn't it, Shahan? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think that the Hanafi siege, this event really triggered a lot of the world that we know today, the security arrangement, the anti-terrorism infrastructure, especially. Um, after this event, this was a huge wake-up call. Munich in 1973. Uh, I, I talk about that in my book as well. It's a really important moment because Munich actually, some of the events that precipitate uh, are, are, are that that occur in Washington, D.C. Right, and that was the Olympic Games hostage-taking yes. of Israeli was, athletes. Exactly. And that was just a shock to the system for a lot of European countries and the United States. Nixon was freaked out by the Munich massacre. Uh, well, the massacre it wasn't hard massacre. to freak Nixon out, though, was it? <laughs> no, he called in, uh, uh, what's her name? Dixon, that soothsayer. Uh, a couple of days after, in the Nixon tapes, I found some interesting conversations where he's talking to to a soothsayer about, like, what should I do here? And, and then calls in Kissinger <laughs> right after her, uh, to uh, after her. I Kissinger was his soothsayer. <laughs> well, he was more of an executor in this case. But he, he instructed Kissinger to set up the first anti-terrorism infrastructure in, in the history right. of the United States, the Committee to Combat Terrorism. But uh, that really fizzled. And as Munich kind of faded into the background, people forgot about it. And then... The Hanafi siege, this event in March 1977, would just brought everything that Munich was and add live TV to it, add just a really, uh, you know, media savvy hostage taker to it, lead hostage taker to it. And it was just, I mean, this was, it, this event just took over the national consciousness. Did you ever see the movie, The Taking days. of Pelham 123? I did not. That's Denzel Washington, isn't it? Uh, no, it's a it's a film about um, again a, a, an attempt to hijack. Yeah, a, I know uh, a, a metro like train, yeah. but it was in the late seventies too. Uh, but it was a purely criminal attempt to, to to get money. So let's get to the let's get to the core of this, uh, Shahan. Who who who, what, who were the people doing it, and what were they trying to do? Well, the leader was a man named Hamas Abdul Khalis. Um, he that that was not the name. Yeah, he was born, born Ernest Timothy McGee. Exactly. Quite a different name. <laughs> Ernest Timothy McGee. He just went through a few different name changes, but Ernest Timothy McGee was grew up was born in Gary, Indiana, um, in a large family. Uh, the seventh child of his parents who had moved north from the, uh, during the Great Migration. Uh, he grew up uh, in, the, in Gary as a, you know, uh, in a studied in a segregated school, eventually ended up in the U.S. Army. 
and was let go. That's in some ways where I pick up the stories when he's let go from the U.S. Army in 19, uh, early 1940s on a Section 2 discharge, which was a discharge because of a mental disorder or mental instability. Uh, he goes on to become actually a really uh, successful jazz musician in Harlem. He From Chicago, he goes to uh, New York and enjoys some success. Uh, he tours Europe. He goes to several, like half a dozen different European countries in 1947 as part of this kind of jazz band that they've assembled in New York, uh, kind of blazing the trail for a lot of talent, jazz talent from America that was going to go to Europe after the war ended. Um, uh, but in that jazz, in those jazz circles, he discovers Islam because Islam was big in the jazz circles in Harlem in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and he is specifically, particularly, he his, his, the nation of Islam catches his attention. So that's the black nationalist group led by Elijah Muhammad with Malcolm X uh, as his deputy. Um, and Khalas quickly becomes a leading figure in that organization. Um, but he doesn't stick around long, and then he creates his own organization, the Hanafis, which is which moves to then and they moved to Washington D.C. in the 1970s with the help of his star disciple Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, that was uh, the young NBA star Louis Alcindor, who Collis named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And in D.C., they established themselves. Um, and this is where all the events happen. And I mean, DC right, is kind and of he, where it all unfolds. He looks like a rather, he looks like a figure conjured out of uh, Hollywood, a very sort of photogenic man. Yeah. Um, I a mean, very was, troubled, but charming man as well. Troubled, um, but charming. Yeah. True of many of us, Shahan. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, was he just insane? I mean, you know, you bring up uh, uh, you you bring up Kareem uh, Abdul Jabbar, the great ba uh, the, the great basketball player. How is he connected? I well, mean, this is really, in some ways, this is more a story about African American politics than it is about Islam or uh, or the Middle East. Is that fair? I think it's about both, or maybe at the intersection of those two things, because a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the characters, most of the characters in this in this book are African-American. Um, and I am detailing in, at least, especially in the first half of the book, a very African-American tradition of Islam and the different, you know, manifestations of Islam in African-American tradition. Um, like all the main characters are black in my book. But it's also about how they were not operating in, in, a, in a vacuum or in isolation that Islam and the dynamics of Islam in America, especially in the, the black population, were all tied, had, they had threads that led to the Middle East. But I mean, you, you posed a really good blunt question. Was he insane? Uh, and I, I mean, I do play with that idea. Like I said, I start the book. The book begins with his psychiatric evaluation on an army base in Arizona. Um, there is an element of that, but his actions that he took in 1977, that I, you know, I trace all the events that lead up to that. And it's not just his mental state. It's also the politics of the era, his religion, but also the American justice system and how he, his experiences in, with the American justice system. Some of the injustices that he faced through the American justice system, some of the Ameri the injustices he faced through the American bureaucratic system, like the, getting denied the GI Bill at certain. So there was a long, you know, there was a lot happening during the 50s and 60s 
and the 70s that are leading up to this. But for him in this event, I can't just say it was the mental. It was the mental, which was the political, which was the religious, which was the personal, which was the, you know, all all of these they yeah, I mean, collapse all... into each other. And so it all led to this. Remind act. us of the politics within, uh, shall we say, the the, 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 the left or the radical left of the African-American community. Of course, there was Malcolm X and there was also the nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, remind us of the background to this and then specifically how um, it fits into your story of Hamas Abdul Khalid. Um, the na- so the Nation of Islam is a fascinating organization um, that I, I got to, you know, research and, and write about in this book. Um, it started in, in, I mean, it's uncertain, its roots are uncertain, but it started with actually a, a kind of a mysterious figure in Detroit, Michigan, who was a, presumably an immigrant from probably from South Central Asia, Day, I mean, as far as anybody's been able to tell, actually, that AFPAC region, the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, is probably where he was from. But his message was of uh, not just black nationalism, but also black supremacy, even though he was not black himself. And he preached this thing called Islam, which was on its, in its own thing, which was mixed with science fiction and new age philosophy and, 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 math, and math and science. And it was this really rich... Uh, kind of uh, kind of intoxicating uh, mix of ideas which preached essentially that the African Americans in the United States were a lost tribe, what he called the lost tribe of Shabazz, which are which were um, divine almost uh, people who had been kidnapped from uh, Africa and brought to the United States. The people who did this kidnapping in this theology were Satan were devils. And that was the white man. And so that is where uh, the Nation of Islam stood in the 40s and 50s under Elijah Muhammad, which was... Your, a, your own background, um, Shahan, is um, uh, your, your family is from Pakistan. Your last book, The Faithful Scribe, The Story of Islam, Pakistan, Family and War is more of a personal memoir. Um, mm-hmm. How much of your own uh, sense of identity... Uh, is built into this narrative. And, 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 and do you think of the nation of Islam, the African-American Muslims as sort of cousins, as, as part of the same movement, or just a kind of oddity within Islam? You know, that's really, it's interesting. Because like you said, my first book was um, The Faith, uh, Story of Islam, Pakistan, Family and War. And I'm really tracing, I was a reporter, I worked in Pakistan, but the book was really about the history of the country and how it became this Islamic political experiment. But I did, it was a very, it was a story about colonialism. Like center of that story was uh, British colonialism of South Asia, uh, the uh, Indian Empire. And so um, Indian colony of the British Empire. Uh, and I found really, I mean, it was hard to, in some ways, this book picks up where where that one leaves off in some ways, because uh, it's really hard. I mean, the, when I studied this subject, and I was new to this, um, the, the Black Islam in America is something I had to study for myself, and I researched over many years. But there was, uh, you know, it was hard for me to separate the story of colonialism in South Asia and colonialism in Middle Eastern South Asian right. Muslim countries and the uh, development of American Islam 
especially in the black population, because it is those English speaking immigrants from those British colonies whose message is resonating in this country. So it's not just, uh, you know, this uh, mysterious character who started the Nation of Islam, Farad Muhammad. It's also um, black immigrants from the Caribbean whose message of Islam is resonating. Malcolm X, actually, I had the chance to read the, the, the new uh, biography, uh, biography of Malcolm X by Les Payne and Tamara Payne. And that it really told an interesting story of how Malcolm X's own Caribbean roots through his mother were kind of the first, his first exposure to this colonial anti-white, anti-British, anti-European politics. So it's really interesting how it's, it's not easy to separate um, the colonial movements going on in Asia and Africa and the third world uh, from the civil rights movement that's taking off in the 50s in the United States. Both of them are aimed, you know, have similar, and they're talking to each other. And it's it's not just Martin Luther King getting inspiration from Gandhi. Uh, it's also people like Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad emerging in the 19, much earlier in some ways, who are drawing inspiration from Islam, supposedly, but it's really I mean, anti-European well. Islamic politics. So in a, in a funny kind of way, uh, I guess you're suggesting, Shahan, that the 79 hostage crisis and America's sort of full embroilment in the complexity of Islamic politics in the Middle East, that we had a, a sort of a, tant a tantalizing hors d'oeuvre, a, a little uh, snapshot of that in 1977 with this siege of Washington. Absolutely, yeah. And, and the American involvement in the Middle East is obviously went before 1979. 1979 the Islamic Revolution in Iran traces its roots to the 1950s coup in Iran that was supported by the CIA. Similarly, and that's where American involvement in the Middle East begins, and I cover that era in the book. Um, the other important main character in my book, obviously, is Mustafa Akkad, the filmmaker, the Hollywood filmmaker who produces this movie. Um, Called uh, The Muhammad, Message. Muhammad, Messenger of God, and the message is it was really released in the UK. Right. So so uh, just to be clear, because not everyone's going to know this, tell us about this film and why this film was so important in terms of the um, the siege. Well, to, the, to answer your second question first, this was important because the Hanafi's main demand when they took over these buildings had nothing to do with uh, what had happened to them and the injustices they thought they had faced. They Their only and first demand was that this movie... Muhammad, Messenger of God, uh, should be, which was premiering in New York and L.A. that day, it should be canceled, basically, that it needs to go and the reels need to be removed from the country. So this, ostensibly, the way the Hanafis uh, stated it that morning, they were doing all of this to protect the honor of the Islamic prophet, which is a story we know. Um, and so it's Rushdie again. It's a sneak preview of the whole Rushdie thing, in a way. It is a sneak. Pre oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and not just the Rushdie thing, but I mean, there are a lot of examples that follow Rushdie. There's the Danish cartoon controversy. There's the Benghazi attack that supposedly happened because of YouTube videos and all that. But anyway, this movie was. Uh, it was uh, while all of this is while Hollis is moving through his life and discovering Islam in the United States. I am also carrying this other story of this Syrian immigrant 
uh, to America, Mustafa Akkad, uh, trying to produce this movie about Muhammad, like a biopic of the Islamic prophet. And he is, uh, you know, a student in the 1950s when the Suez crisis happens. He's uh, through the 60s. He's uh, trying to put together financing and funding for this movie, which he finally does find funding for it, but in the Middle East. And so he ends up back in the Middle East, his home region, and is uh, fundraising from people, among other people, Muammar Gaddafi, the liberal. Right. Creator. So as if we don't have enough peculiar characters. <laughs> uh, Muhammad, there he is. Uh, right. So Muhammad uh, Gaddafi is also, uh, because he financed the film, is that correct? Well, Muammar Gaddafi, that's the, he's the kind of central character. He's the linchpin in some ways, because he's not only financing uh, the movie, Akkad's film about the Prophet Muhammad, so he's not only financing or pro helping produce a Hollywood movie, he's also financing the Nation of Islam, because he loved financing troublemakers in the Western in the Western world. And not only is he financing the nation of Islam, he's also helping them buy property, their headquarters in Chicago. So Muammar Gaddafi is a central character where a lot of these lines are intersecting in the Middle East. Not just Muammar Gaddafi, there's also the Al-Azhar Institute in Egypt, where all of my characters, uh, all the major characters find themselves visiting. This is the big seminary, the oldest most important Islamic seminary in the world and religious institution in the world. That's where Malcolm X is. That's where Mustafa Akkad, the filmmaker, ends up. They so there there are these power centers at least where this all the my very American characters, regardless of what they're involved in and setting up, they're all visiting these power centers and these very powerful characters like Muammar Gaddafi to get their. Mm, to get the start that they need in America to kind of ascend the ladder in America of Islamic leadership. So in the period, in this period, was also, of course, after the two Middle Eastern wars, one of which Israel won, the second sort of one, uh, the Arab states, Egypt, um, Jordan, Syria didn't distinguish themselves in these wars. And yet, Oddly enough, um, the people who come out of it, the, the siege probably looking best are three Muslim ambassadors, uh, the Egyptian ambassador, the Pakistani ambassador, and the Iranian ambassador. How did they get involved and what did they do? Is their role exaggerated or were they, if there are any heroes of, of, in, in this uh, siege, is it these three ambassadors? It's just, I mean, it's just so crazy to think about that what happened then and, and to imagine that it happening today is just, I don't know, it's not even imaginable. But It's yeah, unimaginable, yeah. It's absolutely, a lot of this is unimaginable today. Which is why it's so uh, but, great, because yeah. it shows how history changes so dramatically. Yeah. It's so easy to paint everything yeah, and, as staying the same, but mm -hmm. 70s was it's, dramatically different. To answer your question, it is not exaggerated. The role that these three ambassadors... So on day two, things are getting really testy and things are getting very... It's getting very hot. The FBI, the federal agencies in the negotiating room want to end it violently. Um, the police are... Surprise, to, surprise, right? Powerful. Oh, especially for that time. The FBI did not like things going on very long. Yeah, And um, the local police, Washington police, is trying to be much more careful. But in come these three suited... 
uh, very urbane, sophisticated ambassadors. Yakub um, uh, Khan from Pakistan, Ashraf Gorbal from Egypt, and Ardashir Zahidi, who had just broken up. Yeah, pre, pre, this was a Shah. This was an ambassador this for was, the Shah, he, not for Khomeini. Oh, yes. He was, so a very different he, kind of... Oh, yeah. The last ambassador for the Iran ever sent to this country, that was him. And he was actually just broken up with Liz Taylor at that time. So <laughs> he, he was party that, central. That sums up the... <laughs> Surreal nature of this Absurdity whole story. Of, uh, but he had he, he was a central, like a real, he was a party um, central in Washington, D.C. at that time. But these three characters enter on day two and they offer their services through the State Department. They say, we will. And what they offer is that we will walk into the building, the B'nai B'rith, where Khalas was, and we will go to Khalas and talk to him face to face, if that is what it takes to bring this to an end. Again, unimaginable for anything like that. This this proposal goes all the way up to the top to Jimmy Carter. Um, I traced the phone call. Right. Did he take his cardigan off, uh, uh, Shahan? Was he? He was actually. Cardigan? I mean, he had been president what two months? <laughs> he had been president yes, less than fifty days, so less than two months. Uh, and at that day, he was actually he was busy because he was uh, 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 hosting the British Prime Minister Callaghan. Uh, and he had just arrived. Rabin, another non-entity, right? Jim Callahan. Yeah. Yes, and Rabin, Yitzhak Rabin, had just left that day, and Callahan had just arrived. So, and, and Carter just was remind, a busy I mean, man. This is pre-Camp David, so Sadat was in power in Egypt. It's a completely yes. different world, and and that's really important because Carter it had already made very clear that there was a Camp David on the cards, that he had come in with a real interest in the Holy Lands, with a real interest of making some grand gesture in the Middle East. And here he is, Rabin's in town, there's a hostage situation, and the Egyptian ambassador, <laughs> the hostage situation where over 100 Jewish hostages are being held, and the Egyptian ambassador and the Iranian ambassador mm. and the Pakistani remember ambassador. remember himself was later assassinated. So Yes, and, and, and so this is kind of, uh, there is a big stake here for Carter personally because he knows what's at stake is the Middle East peace process that he wants to get started. Now, he's sending in the Egyptian ambassador. If the Egyptian ambassador gets massacred, uh, he can say goodbye to his whole foreign policy agenda for his administration for the next four years. So he, this is high stakes for Carter as well. He does distance himself from the decision-making process, but he is being, he's in touch throughout. He makes a personal phone call to the police chief uh, on day two to kind of, to, you know, connect with him and discuss what's going on. Um, so yeah, but it, it, you know that these three ambassadors are getting there. Essentially, and it all ended uh, without really, in the context of of later events of this type, it ended relatively peacefully. Is that fair, Shahan? There were casualties, yeah. And uh, there was yeah, deaths, but, but not, I mean, yeah, I mean that, there was no mass murder. There was no Georgetown. You know, there was no yes, none of the the Guyana stuff happening in Washington. none of the Guyana really, stuff, yeah. none of the stuff even compared to Munich. No, 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 no. Munich was a disaster, and they had they, and America was in some ways learning from the lessons of Munich of how not to handle a hostage situation. Although, uh, yes, I don't absolutely. think Carter learned very much given his handling of the 
later hostage crisis. or or maybe took it to the you know another extreme and and there was way too much or maybe he misunderstood that the people yeah, yeah. in um in iran were not hamas abdul khalis yeah um and but with the hamas abdul khalis it worked you're right uh the ambassadors came out in the middle of the night on on the third on the second and the second night and said they had a deal that they would uh that hamas had uh, agreed to release not just a few hostages, but all 150 or, well, there were less than 150 at that point, but all the hostages with one condition that, well, with several conditions, the main condition being Khalis wanted to go uh, and home that night. And he wanted to just walk away from this whole thing. And uh, he was given that. He walked away from that. He was, he was uh, booked uh, and uh, he appeared to be arraigned and then he was let go on his own reconnaissance and and he never uh yeah he just went home that night he was asleep in bed it's an astonishing was asleep story. in what bed about, before uh, what about the guys hostages. with him i mean how many hostage there, takers were there there were 11 other men hanafi uh followers of his and they all um they were all they all well three of them were released as well the day after that but they uh, the rest were uh, jailed uh, pending trial and uh, eventually, Khalis and every all twelve of them, after some real high stakes, high octane drama in Washington D.C., um, they they're all uh, tried and and convicted. But that high octane drama that follows the trial and the release of Khalis is something I also write about in the book, where the JDL gets involved, the Jewish Defense League, and the Hanafis are facing off in the middle of Washington. Uh, it was a tinderbox. Uh, Washington remained a tinderbox for weeks after. Did the, did the state keep its word? There's a long history, of course, dating back to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire with the Western powers not keeping their word. Is that true of this story, Shahan? Did they not keep their word to the hijacker or the, the, the I don't whatever you want to call them, the, 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 the men who... Carried out this siege of putting their weapons down in exchange for their freedom. Was that not really kept? Um, it's a, it's an interesting and tricky question. I think you'd have to read the story and the intricacies of how. Well, what do you think? You down. wrote the story. I I think that they the the authorities followed the letter of what they agreed to. They they but they also knew they were going they had to catch Collis on something else. And they they knew they were going to find something else to catch him on after they let him go. And it was only a matter of time that Collis would slip up and they would get an opportunity to sweep him up and imprison him. And that's exactly what they did. And I think that they always had that intention when they let him go. Um, but did they violate any of the terms that they had set out? Not technically. They did not. Um but this whole thing was prosecuted. I mean, there was no terrorism charges ever brought. There didn't even exist. There were no terrorism statutes in the book, federal or state or district level, anything. So and, they tried him for kidnapping, murder, and just a bunch I, I, of other things. And what about in terms of media and technology? This is, of course, I'm guessing pre, I mean, it's obviously pre-internet, pre-CNN, pre-OJ uh, Simpson. Was yeah. this covered with the kind of, uh fanatical media obsession that other stuff gets covered today 
Oh yeah, and that's a real thread in the. I'm a professor of journalism. I'm a journalist. Right. So what, so I was yeah. paying close attention to the media, and but there was no CNN. Was fascinating. Then there was right? no CNN, 77. but there was live TV, live TV, and at this time, by 1970, mid 1970s, all the local TV affiliates, the NBC, ABC local affiliates, have ENG the vans, the electronic news gathering vans, the ENGs. So this is this is in some ways the first hostage-taking terrorist attack on American soil that's covered live. So, but there is no 24-hour news, like you said. And so there is a lot of live coverage going on, but it's limited to those evening news broadcasts. CBS, Walter Cronkite. Yeah, ABC, no, no Facebook, Barbara, no Barbara Twitter. Walters. Can you imagine this no. in, in that age? And then finally, Shahan, this is fascinating stuff. And I'm sure, I mean, the book's already, uh, Publishers Weekly have said it's one of the most important books of the year. I think it's going to be a huge hit. It's just out, so congratulations on it. And also, I'm sure it'll get, I don't know if you've sold the movie rights, but at some point it needs to be made into a television or movie show. I agree. Um, what about angry whites here? Then Everyone else is angry, Muslims, blacks. What about the whites? There was a, We had a show uh, last year with David Paul Kuhn, who wrote a book called Hard Hat Riot, which was about the 1970 white riot by working class whites that sort of changed the politics on the right. Was there, were, were angry whites just watching this and sort of shaking their head and saying, oh, well, the blacks or the Muslims, they're, they're violent, they're crazy, or did it not really permeate white politics? I, I don't know how to separate that. I mean, this was, again, this was mainstream politics. It was wall-to-wall -wall coverage on the evening news. It was wall-to-wall. -wall. The front page of the Washington Post, papers all over the country are covering this. For just, you know, really, yeah, it is wall-to-wall -wall coverage. It's interesting, though, that you say that um, because, a lot, you know, there was a lot of frustration at that time, not just among African-Americans in this country, but there was, you know, like you just pointed out, there's a lot of frustration uh with washington and how things but yeah, also I mean, this was hard you know, times this was inflation yeah. it was jimmy carter Absolutely. it was american sense of and impotence we just in, in some ways the, rather like today yes and that it's that's what you know that's what's interesting i wrote this book i signed this book contract when barack obama was president of the united states uh, I wrote this book while watching the rise of Trump. I was working on it through the Black Lives Matter movement. I was working on it through this attack on the Capitol of January 6th. I worked on this while people were banging on the door of the Supreme Court uh, when Brett Kavanaugh was uh, uh, being sworn in. I witnessed a lot of rage in America while working on this book. And it was a really interesting time to work on this book, but it was really, it was, I was looking at America through the lens of what I was studying in the 1970s. And I honestly, I, I think I got a very good lens to view everything through. Um, I, you know, the rage uh, that Khalas and the Hanafis felt at America um, and the just kind of desperation and yeah, just the desperate, they had, in some ways, they had given up on the idea of America. Hollis was a real patriot, and I start the book with that, with his like poetry about America and all. He lost everything in six quick years that I describe in the book. But um, that kind of rage, that kind of hopelessness, that kind of just uh, losing the faith in America is what I saw so many times repeating itself while writing this book through the 2010s. And 20. So there's a lot beyond the kind of obvious themes of this book. 
there is uh, this book resonates, I think, I think, uh, in a way on a much kind of basic level with what we are living through and witnessing right now in America. Lovely. 